Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. And a warm welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold, and today we are back in our series with Jeff Verdorn on In the Beginning. Can you believe it? We're already at part five. We thought it would be a four or five part series, but um, I buy in bulk so I can pass the savings on to you, and I think it's going to be up to seven or eight parts now. That's going to be great. Jeff, welcome. Hi, Bill. Yeah, so we're going to talk a little bit today about the reason for the flood. This is going to be an interesting hour. It is. So we're going to talk today about some of the evidences that there was a worldwide flood just as the Bible describes it. Um, I thought before we get to the evidences, because I've got basically seven categories that we're going to talk about of evidences around the world that shows that the world at one point in time was actually covered with water. So we, most of the world, most geologists, most historians, most whatever, don't actually believe that the world was once covered uh, with water. In fact, I, I love the quote. I was talking to a guy by the name of Del Tackett, who actually uh, produced a, a, a movie uh, called Genesis is History. And in my classes, when I do this in class, I actually show some clips from this movie. But we were talking about the flood one time, and he said, you know, I actually believe that the, the world would believe that there was a worldwide flood because there's so much evidence for a worldwide flood, except for the fact that the Bible says that there was a worldwide flood. So they don't accept it because the Bible says it, even though there's plenty of evidence to show that the world was once covered with water. But I wanted to go back. We talked about this last time, about kind of the reason for the flood. And I I don't want to rehash all the issues that we talked about. But just to set it up again, remember, one of the core reasons for the flood was that God says in Genesis 6-11 that the earth was corrupt before God. And the earth was filled with violence, and God looked upon the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. And a lot of people, I think, believe because in verse 5 it says that God says that great wickedness has come upon the world, and that God sent the one of the main reasons that most believe that God sent the flood is because wickedness was so great on the earth. Well, I ask the question, wasn't wickedness still around even after the flood? And I would arguably, if you look back over mankind's history, there's been great wickedness. So there has to be something else going on, I believe. And I believe this concept in verse 11 where he says there was this corruption. And if you remember last time, We talked about what I think this corruption was, and it says in Genesis 6 at the very start that the sons of God saw the daughters of men and had children with them, and we went into detail describing what that meant. But basically, the sons of God being fallen angels, the daughters of men being human, the daughters of men being human women, and they had children, which are called in Scripture in chapter 6, these Nephilim. So I think this corruption of the line of man with fallen angels creating these Nephilim is one of the primary reasons God sent the flood on the earth to get rid of this, as it says in verse 
12 of Genesis 6, for flesh had been corrupted. And so I think, yes, wickedness, but wickedness continued. This corruption, I think, is one of the main reasons that God sent the flood on the earth. Um, And by the way, it says, uh, some will point out that later in, um, um, in Numbers chapter 13, it also describes these people uh, that the Israelites come across, and they are called Nephilim. But I don't believe that that's the true Nephilim that existed before the flood. Remember, the Hebrew word for Nephilim simply means giant. So I think the people in Numbers 13 were calling these people, you know, like Goliath was a giant that mm-hmm. David slain. And I think they're just calling them Nephilim after the Nephilim of old before the flood. So they're just basically saying, man, these people are giants that they're coming across. So many will try to insist that the Nephilim continued to exist on earth, even today, actually. I just don't think that's possible because I think one of the great purposes for the flood was to rid the earth of these half-breeds, these mm. these, these uh, children of the sons of God and the daughters of men. So that was just a bit of review. That's such an interesting, daunting thought, isn't it? <laughs> it really is. I mean, some will say, well, that's not possible. Angels cannot have relations with human beings. And it's like, well, I think that's exactly what's being described in Genesis chapter 6. And there's nowhere that it says that's prohibited or it can't happen or whatever. And remember, there's a story in Lot. We didn't talk about this last time. Remember, angels came to Lot and the men of this wicked city, the wickedness was still great in in Sodom and Gomorrah. Mm -hmm. And remember, they wanted to have relations with these angels. Yes. Right. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I take scripture at face value in Genesis six and believe that's what happened. And I believe that was one of the great reasons why God sent the flood. Cause that would take care of things, wouldn't it? It would have yeah. taken care of him. And then of course, Noah and his wife, his three children and their wives would have obviously then been 100%, you know, human DNA, no right. mixed right. half breed Nephilims on mm. that ark. I wonder what did people think about that when they think of the flood? I mean, this is an important teaching. It is, and it also goes to the, because I think most people would say, well, God sent the flood because of wickedness. Mm -hmm. And that's always kind of sat with me like, well, wait a minute. There's still been plenty of wickedness after the flood. Yeah. We see it with Sodom and Gomorrah and countless other stories in Scripture, right? And in history. Um, So obviously... That um, that wasn't by itself the reason, not to end wickedness. That's not what happened after mm-hmm. the flood. So, but I think this corruption aspect is is a clue, and the nephilim is a clue to what actually was the main reason for the flood. All right, should we move into the evidences for the worldwide flood? Let's do that. So I've got, like I mentioned, I've got seven categories, and I the best way. Some of these are a little more detailed, but uh, I think if you are a Christian. One of the things that we want to be able to do is to defend the historical narrative in Scripture. Genesis, especially the first 12 chapters of Genesis, are under attack by the world. Many in geology, in archaeology, in history do not believe that the first handful of chapters of Genesis are actually true history. And I think every Christian should have some simple um, um, information that they have to defend the history of Scripture, including the flood of Noah. I believe that was a real event. 
um, that is described in Scripture and that actually came upon the earth. So we're going to actually look at some of the evidences around the world that point to the fact that, yes, we can believe the narrative of the Bible, just as we can believe that Abraham was a real person, that Moses was a real person, person, that the Israelites were real people and came up and, and, and conquered the land of Canaan um, and, you know, the rest of history. All of it is history. And as we have covered in the first several sessions, that even Adam was an historical, literal person in a literal garden. So here we go. Okay. All right. First one. The simple existence of fossils is evidence of a flood. Now, Fossils are found across the globe, and it's fascinating that even though you find them across the globe in lots of different places, generally speaking, scientists will say that it was the result of localized flooding, not of a global flood. And yet these local floods happened around the world. Now, remember, in order to create a fossil, there has to be very specific conditions in order to, to make a fossil in the first place. So if a deer... It, you know, uh, dies in the woods and it, it falls down to the ground. It, the, you can't come back thousands of years later and find a fossil from his bones. It will be exposed to the elements and there won't be anything left after a while, right? So you need very specific conditions. You need water and mud, a slurry, debris to cover that animal so that the moisture and the minerals will then uh, be absorbed by the the bones, which mineralize it, making it basically a fossil. You know, rock. The minerals get into the into the bone, and it transforms from being bone to being a fossil. So there's very specific conditions that have to exist. Those conditions kind of require some kind of flood event, which is why scientists say that they're the result of localized floods all over the world. I would just point out that I think they're all over the world because the world was was flooded across the globe. But we also see fossils in places like the, the deserts of Chile. And you'll find a whale fossil in the desert in Chile. In other words, that once was an ocean. <laughs> you also find sea fossils of all different kinds on the tops of every mountain range of the world. So if you, you know, go to the top of mountain ranges across the globe, you will find fossilized sea creatures on top of them indicating that even the highest points on earth were once covered with water. Now, I will point out at this time, we'll talk about it towards the end of the show, I don't believe the mountain ranges of today were there at the time of the flood. I think they were the result of the flood, of the earth getting pushed up after the flood. So I don't think the flood waters needed to cover Mount Everest at 29,000 feet. Mm -hmm. I think they, we know the entire earth, all land was covered with water. I don't know how high the mountains or the hills were pre-flood, but I'm conf I'm pretty confident that the models and the, the evidence is that the, there, there's not sufficient water on the earth to cover the entire earth to a depth of 29,000 feet, but I don't think they were there. So, mm. so just the existence of fossils themselves are evident around the world uh, in deserts, on the top of mountains, and lots of other places, is evidence for a worldwide flood. Jeff, that is uh, obviously this has to happen rather quickly, too, doesn't it? Otherwise, an animal is decomposing quickly; it's getting picked apart. I mean, it does have to happen in a certain amount of time. It does. I mean, so there are very specific conditions that need to happen in order to create fossils in the first place, and I believe that most of the fossils we find today are the result of Noah's flood. All right. When we come back, we're going to continue the evidence. We've got uh, 
One down, six more to go. Evidence of the flood and the reason uh, for it we discussed just with Jeff Dorn. We're continuing our study on In the Beginning. This is part five. I can hardly wait for more. Be right back. series with Jeff Verdorn. We're talking about today the evidence of the flood. Number one was uh, fossils, and now we're going to move on. So number two, um, the fact that we have layers of sediment all over the world um, is evidence of a worldwide flood. Um, Now this one, a little more explanation. Most uh, geologists will take a look at the layers that are in the strata and they will look at uh, these sediment layers and they'll say these are the layers that are laid down over millions of years, one layer after another layer after another layer. And the next couple evidences that I'm going to talk about are going to build the case that no, I don't believe these layers were laid down over millions of years. I believe that they were laid down in one catastrophic event. Um, if you look at the layers, there's first observation. If you look at their layers, there's actually clean lines in between the layers. Why is that evidence that they were laid down together? Well, because we don't see erosion between the layers. If you had layers laid down over millions of years, you would expect those layers or the tops of those layers to experience erosion over time as well. And so as it rained and water channels are cut Mm -hmm. and so on, and you don't see that in between the layers. They're nice and clean like they were laid down. The two layers were laid down at the same time. You also, you know what else you don't see in the strata, in these strata, are evidence of meteorites. Meteorites are constantly bombarding the surface of the earth. And if one strata layer was there and existed for millions of years before the next strata layer appeared on top of it, you should find evidences of meteorites. And yet you don't. The next observation that we see in the sediment layers are strata where it's often curved. Well, how in the world would strata that is laid down over millions of years get laid down in a curvy pattern? And yet we look around the world and we see curved patterns all over the place. I think the best explanation for that, and a lot of creation scientists agree is that it's evidence that, that those stratas were all laid down at one time and then there is movement in the earth below it and these stratas buckled. They actually bent. And you can only bend a strata of material if it's in a semi-solid state. In other words, as these layers were laid down with mud flows and debris flows, you know, water flows, flood basically, dividing out into different layers and different strata as it flowed, began to harden, then the earth moved and it buckled these layers. And so what we don't see in these buckled layers are major cracking. You would expect that if it completely hardened, right, at over time, and then uh, you get an earthquake or a shift or something and you get a crack, we see those fault lines as well. 
Um, and that's not proof that they were laid down at one time because that could have happened over millions of years and then a fault comes at some point in time and breaks all the layers. But the curved layers can't be explained by those forces. You see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. They have to be have laid down in a semi-solid state bent and then finished hardening. And so you have curved. So in my class, I actually show multiple pictures of this curved strata, but you can Google it and find it. They're all over the place. I have actually went to uh, Florida last year when I was teaching this class, and they had had a big storm come in. I, I think it was a hurricane. And the storm washed up onto shore massive amounts of sand, debris, water, like a flood, right? And it came up on the beach. Over the course of the next year, the normal waves started to cut away at all that material that was laid down there, and it created this three-foot wall of sand. And uh, I show this picture in my class when I, when I teach this. That three-foot wall of sand that's now been cut away by the waves that was created overnight by this storm and cut away shows layers in the sand. Hmm. So one of the things that scientists have discovered is uh, hydrologic experiments have shown that when you have debris mixed with water in a flow, it naturally settles into layers, kind of by size and by density of the different materials, it will layer out. And that ex- that's exactly what I see when I go to Florida and I look at the beach sand. It was laid down in layers and then cut away. Well, where have we seen that before? I think that's evidence that the layers of the strata that much of science believes was laid down over millions of years was actually laid down in some kind of catastrophic event that covered the globe. The next uh, piece of evidence is would be virtually impossible if these layers were laid down over millions of years, and that is what's called polystrate fossils. So these are fossils that are in the fossil record, in the strata, but they cross different layers of strata. So if you have a tree, for example, that's 30 feet long, upside down, and it's in the strata and it crosses over multiple layers of strata, there's no way that you could explain that if those stratas were laid down over millions of years and yet you get a tree upside down crossing all those strata. It has to be that this was some big mix or or slurry of material, including forests and trees and branches and whatever, that were tumbling around, created the layers. You end up having a tree stuck through multiple different layers at one time in a catastrophic event. So these polystrata fossils are huge evidences that these strata were laid down at one time in one event. So we have trees, we have branches, we have animals that cross strata. Um, and we find these, again, all over, uh, all over the world. Jeff, what does polystrate mean? I know what polyblend golfing pants are, but I don't know what polystrate <laughs> fossils are. Poly, many, straight, strata, right? Polystrata fossils. Basically, any fossil that crosses is multiple layers of the strata. Gotcha. Thank you for right. that clarification. That's You're very welcome. interesting. Talking golf pants. I, well, I figured because yeah. I, you know, your brother's here, so I oh, thought okay. I'd talk yeah. golf pants. Yes, he's Jim. My brother Jim. Jim's listening. Yeah. And, and his son, son Daniel. Daniel. Yeah. Yeah. Hi, guys. 
Nice to have him here. Good. Uh, number four, modern, quote-unquote, modern fossils. Oh, this is a good one. We know the narrative that dinosaurs were on Earth and then mammals came along millions of years later and that actually dinosaurs now turned into birds. And so you should not find birds and mammals in the same places that we find dinosaur fossils, right? Because they obviously one evolved into another, evolved into another, whatever, right? That's the narrative that we've come to accept. Except for the fact that we find all of the modern creatures in the same layers that we find dinosaur fossils. Hmm. Now, this is not reported. That's checkmate. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> that's checkmate. And we actually have a fossil of a dinosaur in the stomach of a mammal. <laughs> All right, so we okay. know that they existed together. In fact, we have multiple fossils of a mammal eating a small dinosaur. Remember, a dinosaur is just uh, a reptile. Right. Uh, some of them grew big. Some of them didn't grow big. Uh, some of them got really big, kind of like a modern-day crocodile, which can get huge. Remember, reptiles grow their whole lives, mm -hmm. and I think reptiles... Uh, many reptiles grow their entire lives. So if reptiles were living much longer before the flood, you would have had really big dinosaurs as well. Uh, but there was also many small reptiles. So we have fossils of mammals with dinosaurs inside their stomach. Mm -hmm. So the, clearly they were eating. Most of us, when we think of dinosaurs, though, we do think big. We think <laughs> we do. big, you know, like the ones, the green ones outside the Sinclair gas stations. Yeah. <laughs> Right? Yeah, that's a sauropod. That's, that's a, yeah, that's a big one, right? I, I love that sign. That was a great sign. Yeah, the sauropod, the great big sauropods. Well, and they did. They grew to be, oh, I can't remember, 80 feet long or something. Yeah. So here's a quote. This is from Carl Werner. He wrote a book on this whole subject. He says this, Museums do not show you these modern bird fossils, nor do they put modern bird flesh out with feathers in their dinosaur dioramas. This is wrong. Essentially, every time you see a T-Rex, or a triceratops, or a sauropod, I would add, uh, in a museum display, you should also see ducks and loons and flamingos and any other number of modern birds that have been found in the same rock layers as those dinosaurs. But this is not the case. I've never seen a duck in a dinosaur diorama at any natural history museum in the world. Have you? An owl, a parrot, and yet we find these creatures at the same levels that we find dinosaurs. Okay, that is really interesting. That means all of these living creatures existed at the same time, except now today, some have gone extinct and some haven't. Mm -hmm. So we find modern fossils all the time. It's just not reported like the dinosaur fossils. Mm -hmm. uh, so interesting. All right, I think we'll take a little break, if that's all right with you, Jeff. Mm -hmm. Good deal. You're listening uh, to Jeff Verdorn. We're talking about his In the Beginning series. We are now in part five with probably a couple more to go, but today we're talking about the uh, the evidence of this um, worldwide flood. And if uh, you've missed any of this series, I highly recommend going to MyFaithRadio.com and checking it out because this is a great series. We'll be right back. Let's get it started. Jump in your car. 
what's for dinner? It's the afternoon show with Bill Arno. We are talking about evidence for the flood today, and we've got lots of illustrations, uh, all led by Jeff Ferdorn. He is doing his In the Beginning series. We are in part five. And if you just stepped into your car, or maybe you are just tuning into the radio, uh, you have to go hear this from the beginning, because we started with evidence one being fossils, evidence two being massive sediment layers um, laid down at one time, not over millions of years. And the uh, third evidence was polystrate fossils. And then we just got done talking about modern fossils. And that is so interesting, Jeff, that I can't believe that there aren't um, exhibits where these animals are all together. Yeah, it's, you know, since they found this uh, one fossil, and I always have trouble saying its name, it's this bird-like dinosaur that's called the Archaeopteryx. Mm -hmm. I think that's pretty close. I struggle (laughs) pronouncing that word. But... There's this narrative that has has uh, been developed over the last handful of years that dinosaurs evolved into birds, right? Well, the problem with that is is that the Archaeopteryx has many similar characteristics as some modern birds that look very much like this fossilized bird. Many modern bird species fossils are found, like I mentioned right before the break, in the same exact layers as dinosaur fossils are found. And uh, But places like uh, I was online uh, couple weeks ago at the Natural History Museum in London, and they have an entire display advancing this narrative that dinosaurs evolved into birds, and yet we find all these modern birds in the same layers as dinosaurs. They don't show that. Hmm. That's troubling. It is, and uh, so, and if you recall, and I think it was week one or week two when we were describing uh, the first couple chapters of Genesis, that all life I believe, was created by God, by their kinds, in the garden. And I believe the biblical timeline indicates that that was about 6,000 years ago. So that means that that dinosaurs and birds and ducks and loons and parrots and mammals and everything else that ever has walked the face of this earth came into existence by, by the word of God in the garden some 6,000 years ago. And I might add, so one last word on these fossils It's like, well, wait a minute. I've been taught that all these fossils that we find are millions and millions and millions of years old. Well, there is new evidence now. A woman by the name of Mary Schweitzer discovered this 15 years ago now, 12 years ago now. In fact, 60 Minutes did a whole program on it. And she started dissolving dinosaur fossils. And you know what she found? When you dissolve a fossil, there shouldn't be anything left. But she actually found something left. It was actually a mistake. One of these scientific discoveries that was discovered by a mistake. She dissolved it too far, too much. Soft tissue remained in the fossil. That's unheard of. Things like that appeared to be like blood Mm. vessels and and cells and soft tissue that was still elastic. Now, in her interview on 60 Minutes and also on MSNBC, she was on MSNBC a couple times. She basically said that we need to rethink our understanding of the fossilization process because there should not be, after 50 million years, any soft tissue that remains. And so she says, we're going to have to rethink our understanding of fossilization. I contend that they have to rethink how old these fossils are because I believe these fossils, all the fossils that we're seeing, are actually 
thousands of years old, not millions of years old. We know that fossilization can happen in a very short period of time, and it explains the fact that we can still have soft tissue in virtually, by the way, many people have now tried this. They've dissolved dinosaur fossils, and in sample after sample after sample, they're finding soft tissue remains. That should be impossible if those fossils are truly millions of years old. Hmm. Very powerful evidence yeah. that these this these fossils are younger than what they claim to be. So the million of years of life on Earth. So anyway, that's the we could go on and on about the fossil record. Um, we will talk about it a little bit more when we talk about some of the ideas of evolution and that evolutionary ideas don't fit with Scripture as either. Uh, because I believe God created each individual animal by its kind, and within that kind, various species resulted. So I don't believe God needed to create every kind of dog. I think he created in the Garden of Eden one pair of dogs. And from those dogs, we get all the different species of dogs in the world that we see today. All right, number five, global flood myths. You actually mentioned this uh, last time. And it's like, oh yeah, we got some fun stuff. We need to cover this. But when you look around the world at the various cultures, um, almost all of them have a story, uh, a mythology, a myth about the world being uh, covered with water. And um, many of them will have a story of a handful of people surviving that flood. If you kind of do a cross-section of some of the myths from around the world. Uh, For example, you've got Babylonian myths, that there was great transgression of man, that there was some kind of divine destruction ordered, that there was a favored family that was protected. Many times that protection was provided by a boat or an ark of some sort to survive the destruction by water that comes. Um, Animals were saved, but the rest of mankind was wiped away Um, They landed on a mountain. Uh, Many of them even have the story of a bird being sent out. And if you read the flood narrative, what did Noah send out? He sent out a bird. Um, And uh, and that the survivors worshipped this god or the divine being uh, from this flood. So you've got multiple characters. So whether it's Persia or Syria or Greek stories or Egypt or Italy, Russia, China, India, Peru, um, Aztec, Um, Even Hawaiian and Fiji Islands have stories that parallel this flood account. And you think, well, how could all these different cultures have a similar mythology, a similar story or narrative of what happened in the past? Uh, If it, uh, I think one of the best explanations is that they all came from the same grandfather, Grandfather Noah, who passed these stories down to their children and their children's children and so on. And so we have, we look around the world and we see this story that I believe is recorded in Scripture as being true. These stories are a reflection of that story. Yeah, every, every society has on the record books that the massive flood. Yeah, I don't know. I, yeah, many of them do. I don't know if it's every single one, but the vast majority of cultures around the world do have some similar story. Mm-hmm or mythology that parallels the flood of Noah. Yeah. In fact, the Chinese character, I love this one. This is just an aside. This was not really a proof. But the Chinese <laughs> character for flood is equal to the symbol of water plus the symbol for total. 
So like total water across the earth. But total is the combination of together, earth, and eight. And you kind of wonder, well, why eight? Well, there was eight people saved Hmm. in the flood of Noah. And so the Chinese character even has this kind of almost, you know, strange reference to potentially eight people in water in a flood. That's odd facts known by few. Yeah. (laughs) There you go. Yeah. All right. Number six. This is the most, uh, one of the most powerful ones of all, and that is the story of Mount St. Helens. Now, um, back in 1980, Mount St. Helens in the state of Washington erupted, and uh, with the f- major league forces at play, and the entire mountain, uh, the whole north side of the mountain exploded, and a giant slurry slid down the north slope. Uh, overtaking this lake, Spirit Lake, which was kind of in the at the base of Mount St. Helens, combining now this entire avalanche of mud and trees and debris and and volcanic material and so on into a giant mud flow because it combined with this lake. It washed down into the valley, filling this valley up to a height of of in some places six hundred feet. So the entire valley was filled up with debris. So we had mud flows and pyroclastic flows and and volcanic ash and massive cataclysmic event going on, right? And the valley that was near it was completely filled up with a mud slurry debris mix that filled up this canyon. Now, if I'm right, that the science shows that when you have a slurry moving, it will naturally divide out and create layers, was put to the test two years later. After Mount St. Helens, two years after Mount St. Helens erupted and this valley was filled with all this debris, another lake behind this had formed, uh, collecting massive amounts of water, which two years later broke through kind of a mud dam and washed out a channel through all this debris. Is this sounding familiar, by the way? If you think about the Grand Canyon, I want you to start thinking about how the Grand Canyon is formed. We'll get there in a second. It cut out this canyon, by the way, leaving at the bottom a small little trickle of of water. But you can actually see the walls of that canyon that was created in a matter of hours, by the way, not over millions of years. Um, And they are layered walls. In fact, these canyons look very similar to the Grand Canyon, which uh, many people have gone and seen, and you can see the distinct layers that were laid there. So what do we learn from this? We learn that the layering from an event that lasted actually days, several weeks, with lots of material combined with water flowing into a valley, creating layered strata. We then have another event that comes along and cuts through it and in a matter of hours or days creates a canyon just revealing the layered strata in the material that was laid down in the previous catastrophic event. So, I mean, this we have now, after Mount St. Helens, a natural model that we now can study and look at and say, hey, wait a minute, maybe the same processes that were similar processes that made this canyon at the base of Mount St. Helens were at work 
in the Grand Canyon. Mm. And that's exactly what I believe were the processes that made the Grand Canyon. The layers were created by a giant flood that flooded the whole earth, creating the strata layer that we see. Some kind of massive wash-off from the North American continent breaks through, carves out the Grand Canyon, revealing the layers of strata in the walls that now have all solidified sometime after that. Um, so the old adage is, look what a little water can do over millions of years. That's what science says. Or I think the better picture is, look what a lot of water can do in a short period of time. Boy, Jeff, the, the Mount St. Helens illustration is really a gift to see that evidence right before our eyes. It's it's kind of like God said, uh, you think this all happened over millions? Of, let me give you an example. Let me just <laughs> do it here in a couple of weeks, yeah. and I'll show you how, it's, how it worked. Yeah. It's a perfect example. And yet, secular science just is not using that example and applying it to understanding the Grand Canyon today. Yeah, that doesn't fit their narrative, does it? No, it doesn't. Yeah, that's sadly. All right, we're taking a little break. Jeffrey Dorn is my guest. We're continuing our series in the beginning. This is part five. If you're following, and I'm sure you are. We'll be right back. Jeff, road trip to Mount St. Helens. We should go check that out in person. It is. There's actually this movie that I mentioned at the start of the hour. It's Genesis is History by Del Tackett. Uh, actually interviews some people right at the places that we were just talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, does a wonderful job explaining it. So I highly recommend that. Yeah. Well, we are uh, talking to Jeff Ferdorn as we continue our series on In the Beginning. And we are talking about evidence for the flood. And right now, we're getting down to our very last piece of evidence, but this is going to fill the rest of the time. So I'm looking forward to it. Well, number seven, our last reason is uh, not so much an evidence, uh, but it's a rationale. And that's simply that God says that he covered the whole earth. Genesis chapter 7, verse 19 says this, They rose greatly on earth, and all the high mountains under the entire heavens were covered. The water rose and covered the mountains to the depth of more than 15 cubits. Uh, That's just over 15 feet. Now note, as I mentioned earlier, I don't believe that the great mountain ranges of the world had yet been formed. I believe those were formed in a short period of time, kind of like the Grand Canyon we were just talking about, after the flood. So we don't know how high the mountains were before the flood, but God tells us very very plainly that he covered the whole earth to a depth of 15 cubits. So God says it. I, you know, this gets, there are some in, in Christianity who uh, don't want to take scripture at face value. So for example, there's a story that says that uh, Balaam if you know the story of Balaam, he was asked to, God asked him to bless Israel. He was going to then curse Israel. And God opens the mouth of the donkey and the donkey speaks, right? And if you know that story, it's like, well, can donkeys really speak? And I think it says that the donkey spoke in scripture. There's no indication that this is a a parable or a story of any kind. It's It's an historical narrative. And it says the donkey spoke. Now, in the same way that the serpent spoke, 
in the Garden of Eden that we talked about a few weeks ago. Well, some will say, well, donkeys don't talk. I don't believe that. I think you've got to be very careful at saying and declaring that some of the things in the Bible are real and some of the things that are plainly described in Scripture are not real. Because if you apply that test, well, how do you know Jesus turned water into wine? How do you know he walked on water? How do you know he healed the lame and gave sight to the blind? And centrally, how do you know he rose from the dead? If these, if you're just going to write off some of these miracles as not happening because you don't believe they actually happened, well, then how can you trust that Jesus came as man and died on a cross and rose again in power and glory? Mm -hmm. So it goes to the heart of whether or not we can believe God or not. And I say we didn't. I remember reading a con, a, a commentary one time on the donkey and Balaam's donkey, and it says. The voice of the donkey represents the inner struggle of man that, you know, is at work within, you know, blah, 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 blah. Or the donkey talked. <laughs> and I mm -hmm. believe it did. And I believe that God sent floodwaters and covered the whole earth. Yeah. He says in Job 12 that the floodwaters overturned the earth. Isaiah 54, the floodwaters covered the whole earth. Matthew 24, Jesus talking. He says, the flood took all the people off the face of the earth. Jesus describes this as a literal event. Jesus talking again in Luke 17, the flood destroyed all people. The whole world was condemned, Hebrews 11, 7, and God destroyed the whole world, 2 Peter 2, 5. So over and over again, different authors in the Old and New Testament declare that God actually uh, sent a flood over the whole earth. Um, there's actually, if you study this, there's actually many, many different evidences for the flood. Um, if you look at the analysis of population growth after the flood, because remember, Noah and his, and his wife and his three sons and their wives, eight in all, would have been the only people left on the face of the earth. Does evidence show that eight people could multiply into seven and a half billion? What's our population today? Seven, seven and a half billion. Seven and a half billion. Mm -hmm. And it's like, well, that's exactly what statistics will show, that if you have eight people about the time of the flood and uh, they multiply on the face of the earth, you'll end up with seven and a half billion people. That's what we see. Um, there's uh, globally... There's a complete absence of any evidence of animal and plant root activity within these tiny sedimentary layers. That's an evidence that these layers were laid down at one time. Like we talked about, graveyards of fossils and marine life on the highest crest of, of it. There's uh, universe, There's the you know the oldest living things on the earth are about up to four thousand years old, which would have been after the flood of Noah. There's nothing on the earth living. That's any older than the flood of Noah. Just uh, And there's lots of different categories. But those are some of the evidences so that you as a Christian can defend the truth of God's word and that when he says he did something, he actually did it. How about the ark? Should we talk about the ark a little bit? Yeah. How much time do we got left? A couple minutes? Okay. So here's some facts on this ark. Now, I have not been... To answers in Genesis, uh, Ken Ham has built a full-size replica of the Ark of Noah. And uh, I know a number of people that have been there, and they say it's really cool, and I would love to see it sometime. 
because uh, I have one question of answers in Genesis. Would it actually float? I, I wanted to find out if what they actually built as an exhibit mm-hmm. would actually float. If Now, I know water's never going to come again, right? That's one of the aspects of the flood that God promised never again to flood the whole earth. Uh, by the way, that's why he sends the rainbow, right? He sends a rainbow as a promise that says, I'll never flood the earth again. And And just a quick aside, he sent a rainbow like that was a new thing. That means there was never a rainbow in the sky prior to the flood. Think about that. There was never a rainbow in the sky prior. Some people believe or, or comment that this this flood of Noah was somehow some great big thunderstorm of some sort. That's not what this flood was. This Remember the description. The depths, the waters in the depths of the earth burst forth and the heavens burst open. And that's not a thunderstorm here. No. So Genesis seems to indicate that prior to the flood, a dew watered the earth, maybe kind of like a terrarium kind of environment, and that the streams from the deep watered the earth. So I don't think it rained. I think it was this perfect environment um, prior to the flood. And that's why the rainbow is such a big deal. But it would have been the first time that droplets in the air being reflecting the the mm-hmm. light from the sun to create a rainbow in the sky. Do you imagine seeing that for the first time? Oh, I see a rainbow today, and every time I'm just in awe. I, think I it's am so too. cool. Yeah, I am too. Have you ever seen a double rainbow? I have. Yeah, those are very cool. The sun dog, have you seen a sun dog? What's a sun dog? A sun dog is kind of a rainbow effect around the sun when it's really cold outside. Hmm. And the ice crystals, I think, in the atmosphere create a sun dog. Well, I bet I have, right? Yeah. Yeah, you live. I, I, I do go outside. <laughs> Sometimes. <laughs> On occasion, yeah. I probably saw something. You're not stuck in this studio all the time? No, no. All right, good. Um, yeah, maybe you could go for a ride in a car, maybe with a top down. That'd be kind of nice. Yeah, that yeah. would be great. I would, would look forward to that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All this right, summer. so some, go ahead. This summer. This summer. I'm pointing towards your brother. It's, uh, yeah, it's got to get warm quick here. Um, facts on the ark. It is, uh, was about 500 feet long. It was about 75 feet wide. It was 50 feet high, three stories. Uh, in fact, there's uh, scientists have who have researched what is the best dimensions for an ocean-going gro- uh, craft, and the dimensions that they have found are the dimensions of the ark. It's basically 30 by 5 by 3. Mm. Um, and it's like, oh, go figure that science would spend millions of dollars discovering <laughs> the best dimensions of an ocean going craft, and it just happens to be the dimensions of the ark. I think God knew. That, yeah, I think right? he did, too. Yeah, I did, too. Uh, it's the largest wood ship ever built in the history of mankind, and it took Noah and probably his family over a 100 years to build. Do you think he would have been mocked a little bit by the people around him? It's like, mm-hmm. no, what are you doing? Uh, I'm building it for the flood. Ah, you're crazy. It's never even rained. What are you talking about, a worldwide flood? And I think that would have been... Uh, a a tremendous show of faith to listen to God and to follow his ways for the next hundred years building this ark. I mean, as they're building this, they're growing more gopher wood as they're building it, right? <laughs> I have never thought about that. Kids, we need more gopher wood. Go plant uh, yeah. a few trees. And... Plant some more gopher trees. <laughs> I have never thought about that, well, but you're absolutely right. Um, so who was on the ark? We've kind of already mentioned this. Noah. Noah's wife, uh, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, his three sons, and their three wives. So eight people in all were on the ark. 
And so what does that mean? Uh, by the way, they were in the ark for um, a, a year, about a year. Um, the flood, of course, of course, lasted, the rain, of course, lasted 40 days and 40 nights, but the flood waters did not recede uh, for the better part of a year. Um, so, um, yeah, so they would have been in this ark with two of every kind, as the Bible says, for just about a, a year before they came out. Um, so after the flood, they land, and Genesis 8 says this, Now the springs of the deep and the floodgates of the heavens had been closed. Those are the two forces that caused the flood in the first place. And it says that the, and they've been closed, and the rain had stopped falling from the skies, and God says, Come out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons, and basically go and repopulate the earth. And so every single person on the face of the earth can trans can identify their genealogy to Noah and his sons. That means Noah is all of our, I don't care what ethnicity you are, mm-hmm. your great, 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 great grandfather was Noah. There's one race on the face of the earth. It's called the human race. We all share common ancestry in the person of Noah, according to the Bible. Amen. Jeff, what a great study. I'm loving this. Thank you so much for part five. That's all the time we have for today, but we'll continue part six next time we're together with Jeff Verdorn. Thank you, Jeff. Perfect. Thank you, Bill. Have a great night and God bless. I'll see you tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.